I had an easy ride, you know, really, alongside of, you know, what a lot of people did. Welcome to Courage and Valour, New Zealanders in the Italian Campaign in World War II. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Episode 11, The Engineers. The Engineers were an integral part of the success of the 2nd New Zealand Division in Italy. Perhaps their best remembered role in the campaign was the laying of many, many bridges across the rivers and canals of the Italian countryside to assist in the advance of the infantry, armour, artillery and other units. However, they did a lot more than this, and had such varied jobs as laying and clearing minefields, laying railway lines, erecting buildings, milling timber and repairing vehicles. The 2nd New Zealand Division had four main units of the engineers, the 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th field companies. There were other small units too attached to the division. The troops of the field company were known as sappers rather than privates. They lived a varied and interesting life during the Second World War. The engineers did their initial training in New Zealand, with sappers being based at various times at Auckland's main racecourses such as Ellerslie, Avondale and Alexander Park, as well as the Epsom showgrounds and regular army camps at Papakura, Hopuhopu and Wauru. Through the war, some of them also trained at other, more southerly bases. The following recollections are from but a few of these men who, as part of the New Zealand engineers, helped keep the division moving forward in Italy. Tom McLennan of the 7th Field Company remembers switching from the infantry to the engineers. When I went away, a friend of mine, my most friends there, said to me, we're got talking, and he said, what are you in, Tom? I saw I'm going in the infantry. I said, what are you, Jack? He said, I'm in the engineers. He said, I don't know what for. He said, I know nothing about engineering. And so he said, would you like to go with me? I said, oh, okay. So we went and saw, this is in Papakura. So we went and saw this major. He said, what do you do, boy? Come off the farm, I said, yes. He said, can you use a pick and shovel? I said, yes. Oh, he said, you're now a sapper. And I said, what? He said, you're a sapper. And I looked at my friend, I said, I said, this major, you've got a very nice bloke, he's a return man for the First World War. And uh, he said, engineers. I said, yeah. So I went out, and I'm walking across the parade ground or something, and another chap there, I said, what are you in, Bill? He said, in the infantry, Tom. He said, what are you in? I said, I said I'm in the engineers. I said, sapper, whatever that bloody means. He said, oh. I said, Paddy got me into it. I said, would you like to join this? And this bloke and I had actually gone to school together in Martin. And he said, yeah, right, eh? So we went back and I said to this major, went in, called out, can we come in, sir? Yes. So we went in. And I said, this chap here, I said, got a better story, so I said, we actually went to school together. So he asked him the same questions he asked me, 
He said, well, you're now a sapper And when we went away, this first bloke we brought in was, well, he worked in that office in town here, big office, and he was pulled on to, into the orderly room. So it was okay. And when we got to, then he eventually came out and we went back into field companies and bridges and that. And he said to me one day, he said, well, the two, three of us, well, do we all want to stick together? And I said, oh, yes. So he was working in the orderly room and he, he put us down, three of us together, we went to the Seven Field Company. And I said, what have you put me down, Jack? He said, you're a driver mechanic. I said, what? He said, you're a driver mechanic. That's the first I've ever heard <laughs> I uh, joined the army in February 1940, uh, much to my mother's regret. Eric Bullen was with the 2nd New Zealand Divisional Engineers. And I had my training the first month at the LSE race course, where we drilled holes in the rockery, with, uh, uh, which we shouldn't have done. And then we moved to Avondale race course, where we went into camp, and I had two months there. We used to raid the cookhouse quite often at night and especially before race meetings where there was chooks and things. Uh, we got into all sorts of women trouble as a matter of fact. Uh, and from then um, uh, they moved the engineers which I belonged to out to Ardmore and we built the uh, the prison for those guys that had deserted or got into trouble out at uh, at Ardmore, and then they moved us into Papakura uh, camp, where they had four blocks at the time, and we built E, e block down at the bottom where the golf course is now, um, and from there we moved from uh, Papakura out to a place called Afitu. Uh, out on the Manukau Hedge where we built uh, uh, machine gun pits uh, and things like that. And then back to uh, Papakura and then we were con conveyed from there to Wangarei or Kamo, Three Mile Bush Road and I was in camp and, uh, in, in that area for around about 11 months. Uh, a lot of our training was night and at one stage of the game uh, where we let off a lot of uh, jellic night at night, the uh, local people thought the Japs had landed and uh, everybody was sort of frightened with the noise we were making. So that was stopped and we used to have our meals at the uh, Wangarei Hotel in Lofty Blomfield. The, uh, one of our top wrestlers was the uh, uh, proprietor. And so there, there, then of course I became of age and they moved me to Trentham. And I was in camp in Trentham for about three months while we trained for overseas. And I went overseas with the 9th reinforcements on a boat called the Dominion Monarch. Ted Gatfield tells how he became an army engineer. I uh, left school at 16, I think, yeah. So I had two years into electrical trade at, trade at 
at, at um, Timberland Jones. 16, 17, 18, 18, I was called into the Territorials and I went in as an engineer in the Territorials. Uh, we were based out in um, Avondale Racecourse in Bell Tents. <laughs> With very good training, we had very good instructors and uh, I enjoyed the, the three months that we had and we were only supposed to be in the Territorials for three months and then go back to our job. But in the meantime, Japanese came into war, didn't they? And the government says, you guys are going to stay and try and defend New Zealand if we get invaded. Okay. So, I don't know, from there, um, for some reason or other, I got drafted into the Ellerslie vehicle pool when they were impressing vehicles, taking trucks off people and their motor cars and, you know, getting everything like that. I don't know how I got there, but however, with a bit of a waste of time, all I was doing was charging batteries and keeping things moving around the park. And however, I had an opportunity to go to Papakura military camp and go into the workshops in the auto electrical department there. And I thought, this is a good idea. It'll stop me wasting my time. I will at least learn something. <laughs> yes. And so I had 18 months or so there, and then I, at that stage I turned 21 by that time, and due for reinforcement, due to go overseas. So there were three of us that left the workshop. We were all about the same age. There was Hathaway, who was a mechanic. There was Edgar Luty, who was a welder. And there was me as an oil electrician. And being an infantry camp, as Papakura was, we were drafted into the infantry. And none of us liked all this one-stop, two, and rifle stuff, and you know. So we kicked up Bobsy Die, and we told them we wanted to be in the engineers. And so they sent the three of us down to Wellington, to the engineer camp down there, yeah. Ted Lees had worked in the family beekeeping firm and then in the family garage before deciding to join the army. I was a typical young kid growing up and I started going to the movies to see the Spanish Civil War. That was the big thing on the movies. The Germans had sent all these dive bombers down and all these things. and. Uh, I said to my father one day, um, one day I joined the army and uh, he didn't object. I went into Auckland, went down to Rutland Street to the drill hall and there was a rough looking old First World War Sergeant Major there, tough looking guy. He said, are you going to enlist? And I said, yes. How old are you? And I didn't think quick enough. I should have said 20. I said 18. He said, all right, Oak, sign here. Do this, do that. Take the oath. And that was it. Tom McLennan recalls the size of a field company of the engineers. Seven field, one platoon we were. And I, I think, well, I was in three sections at the finish. Oh, there'd be about... 70 
odd altogether in a unit. It was about 16 an hour and there were three units and that was 16 to 18 I think and then there was headquarters as well there was another 20 maybe in there I don't know I've forgotten but I've got an idea there was around about 70 odd in each each uh, squadron and or in seven fields and of course there was our, we were number one and there was number two and the number three all sort of different sections but uh, Eric recalls the main roles of the engineers on the battlefront well the main thing is uh, there's three or four things one is roading two is bridging three is demining and four is where you go into houses, uh, the Germans used to put little explosive devices in various places and you had to uh, 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 you, you, you had to examine these and disarm them. And for instance, when they put uh, telemines in the road, they dig a hole and they got cunning in the finish. Instead of having a teller mine, a single level of the German mine, they'd put uh, sometimes two and sometimes three in the one hole and wire them together. And, our, and the engineers and those before that, we always used to, when we found the teller mines, because we had mine swippers, we used to flick the shovel under the mine and flick it out. But after... Uh, a couple of our platoons were decimated by uh, this method because of uh, the mine underneath exploding. Uh, it, it was stopped and we had to get down our hands and knees then and uh, and uh, demine the, uh, the things properly. And it was the same when we went into houses. They used to fill the little keyholes or you opened the door uh, and a, a little spring had set a dead off, and you'd have an explosion. So it, it was that was uh, one of the things. And also, uh, in my case, uh, I used to have to go out with the um, infantry when they were attacking, and if we came across um, places where we needed a bulldozer or where we needed a small bridge or something or other to get uh, tanks across, I, I'd radio back to, uh, to get something up. So, you know, it was quite interesting. And um, uh, occasionally uh, uh, it was frightening too, of course, but uh, uh, it's just you, you sort of got used to it in many ways. And... Uh, 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 that's virtually uh, what the engineers did, and especially when we got up into the big rivers like the Adige and the uh, Po and uh, uh, that sort of thing where we had to put in folding boats and build bridges across them and all that sort of thing. So it was quite interesting work. Like all the rest of us, we arrived in Chiffick and trucked over to Marty Camp and like the army usually does, instead of staying in the units you set out in, they then decided, you know, there'd been a lot of guys there a lot longer than we had, that they'd sort us out separately again. 
So I tried to get back in the engineers with uh, on this because uh, I was a demolition specialist, and uh, and apparently somebody saw me walking along the road who knew me and from the the nineteenth um, uh, and the mixed up with the Emmy and uh, oh, Ted Lees, he comes from a garage in Papakura. So they grabbed me and 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 we ended up in what they call the flying fitters in, these, in this white armoured car. So we had to do manoeuvres up in the desert. And I don't know whether you've ever heard of Major Wooler, but he had a great big staff car and of course in those days we call them wide profile tyres today, but they call them sand tyres. So he's taking us all for a manoeuvre out in the desert. So we set off way up. And away he went. And we saw a cloud of dust like that. And we travelled for about 12 hours and got stuck in the sand. Never saw Major Wooler again. And we decided we'd lie down and go to sleep and worry about it in the morning because we were stuck. Because the ordinary ground up tyres is no good in sand. One little skid in it. The middle of the night, all hell broke loose. We'd ended up, the, the rest of the dev were having a, a shoot, practice shoot, and we were right where they were shooting. So we dug a bigger hole in the sand. <laughs> And next morning we got this vehicle out and we managed to find somebody that, um, in our inexperience of the desert, to get us back into the right place. But it was a great experience to be thrown in the deep end. When we first went to Egypt, we were there, I don't know, for two or three months, I suppose. And the war had finished over in Egypt and we went out to... I think it was called Mina. It was very close to the pyramids. And we were there for about a fortnight or so. And we did mainly um, mine lifting and practicing and all, all that sort of thing. And um, then we went into Mardi. And the blokes had come back from the desert. It was some terrible sights. And the funniest thing I ever saw, well, when we first got from Mina to Mardi, we were drafted into tents, and I went to one tent here, and I thought, oh, shivers. Bloody bloke had been out in the liquor, and they're all, the majority of them were a lot older than us. And uh, anyhow, somebody said, oh, what the hell is going on here? We can't. And the sergeant came in and yanked, come on you dirty bugger, clean yourself up, have a shower and that. And then oh, about two or three weeks later, it started to rain and there must have been a couple of hundred blokes raining, no clothes on. They hadn't seen rain for two years or something. And, uh, and we did that all, and still kept on doing the same thing. And I know one night we were out doing mine lifting somewhere and the boys all had um, uh, what were they called uh, mine detectors on 
and I'd have it on your back and over your ears. And, right? and I was following this bloke, and I said, this one, so and so. Well, he stopped. He's in here, Tom. And I put my hand down and I got hold of a bloody snake. It wasn't very long, no? about two foot long. And I said, oh, I gave a hell of a scream and the sergeant or something was there beside. He said, what's going on, McLean? I said, I've got a bloody snake. Oh, he said, no, come on, everybody knock off. We only did that place once. <laughs> and then some canal. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was in Egypt. And our first Bailey Bridge. And we worked on that and we did a couple there, practice works. We went over on reinforcement to uh, Cairo, Mardi Camp. Did more training over there, lifting Bailey Bridges, making Bailey Bridges and lifting mines and, and uh, you know, I didn't go much on that lifting mines, but I went through the mine school and I'll tell you what, I passed 100%. I thought it was no good <laughs> not being able to recognise a mine when I had to lift it and take the booby traps off. I'm dead. <laughs> So that was all right. Uh, when other people uh, I knew, um, they they said, "Look, the, the invasion's coming up, and we need a team of people to um, prepare all this stuff to, you know, everything from caterpillar tractors to Sherman tanks and." And they all got to be waterproof. We had to put air air uh, intakes up high so that if they're dropped into water very deep, they could at least uh, flounder their way up. And uh, uh, so that went on and on, and uh, it was a very tough task to get to some of the stuff and come back from the desert in bits, and we had to put it all together again. And finally we moved up to Alexandria and we loaded, um, we were allocated uh, a ship each. I was allocated a, a Liberty ship built by Kaiser on the assembly line. And I'm looking at this ship and of course to load the tanks, we didn't have all the stuff we got today. They had to use two cranes, one at each side of the, each end of the tank and come in like that and drop them down the hole and up like that and swing them out and drop them down outside when they unloaded them. So we, we, got, we, we slept on the, alongside the ship on the wharf until it was loaded and um, of course the army don't tell you anything except that um, better get aboard, we're off. And we get on this Liberty ship and we headed away out down the, and it was most interesting. Here were these 150 ships. You look out this side and you count somebody that side and somebody that side. And then the captain said, righto, because oh, I, I was the senior NCO on board. And uh, I've got a job for you. They've got, they had these eight uh, rockets lined up on the top. We towed a barrage balloon during the day and let it out like that with a steel cable to it. 
But in case of air raid, no fancy things except a telephone, you're going to sit up there all day, and if I tell you fire one, you fire one, and it it went up with a parachute, to, you know, for it to come down, with five steel wires. I don't ever go, but unfortunately, I never got the chance. It would have been lovely to see how, how well it would have it would have split open a um, a German plane. And anyhow, we we got to Augusta in Sicily, or we went into Malta first, and then I counted three hundred ships. Imagine three hundred ships. The place was just chock a block, and then we sailed to, to um, uh, Sicily. Our group, after mucking around for a while, took off and we had this little, we went down some, a ladder into the hold and we had a little space about that big where we could just bed down on our blanket. And um, everything was going very well and the next minute there was a hell of a bang and the old ship did a big jump out of the sort of water and the bells rang and everybody's up that ladder with their life jacket on like a like a you know a rabbit and fortunately it was a ship next door that ran into a mine it wasn't us so um, that was that was lucky we went by train from Mardi to to alexandria and um, got on a, a troop ship the samaria it was a proper proper troop ship. We had to climb up the ropes <laughs> to get on board because it was anchored out. And um, we sailed across to uh, Sicily and went through the Straits of Messina. Uh, you could see Italy on one side and Sicily on the other because it was not that the Straits aren't that wide. And we landed at Naples. Naples Harbour was uh, a wreck. There was ships sunk there, and, and uh, they took us from there to the palace grounds. We had a uh, camp in in the palace grounds at Naples, and um, anyway, they put us on um, some cattle trucks and took us across the, uh, the foot of Italy to Barry. It was about 30 of us to a cattle truck. Uh, it took us you know, a couple of days to go because of the, the tracks were in a hell of a place, hell of a condition. Some of the local Italians they travelled all that way on the bumpers of those cattle trucks. <laughs> I mean, our trip was bad enough in, the, in 30 to a cattle wagon. Down in Toronto and all through there, they were all peasants, all dressed in black, and they looked all the same. Uh, we uh, used to nod to them and all that sort of thing. But then we were moved up um, to a place called Bari, up the coast, and um, while we were there, the big ammunition come, the ship came in, 
and they were unloading that, and um, the Germans came over and bombed, and they had a direct hit, and this bloody uh, ship blew up, and it, it spluttered uh, stuff around uh, uh, over half a mile. Uh, it was such a tremendous explosion, and uh, that was in the middle of the Barry Harbour, and that was bloody scary, I can tell you. I never, I've never heard such a bloody noise in all my life. While at Bari, which was the 2nd New Zealand Division's forward base by this time, Stan was given a task that really made him use his head. Uh, my first uh, time I'd ever had to use uh, centimetres and metres than that because I had kits kit set and huts to build. And uh, the instructions were all in metrics. So that was my first, you know, contact with the, the metric system. <laughs> and it was a bit awkward to start with, but uh, I soon got used to it. And uh, we built um, Nissan huts there for, for temporary hospitals and things like that. Whenever I was in base camp, uh, I'd have to take various courses in uh, lifting mines and uh, also in a, uh, on a uh, course where I uh, had to build uh, models of the battlefield make a profile of the land in Plaster Paris and that, so that you could show the soldiers what, where to go. And uh, apart from that, uh, I mean, various um, mine lifting and bridge building uh, lessons. We arrived in Bari and um, we did what we thought we had to do and got everything unloaded and tidied up and then somebody came along and said, get these bloody tanks out of town. And so we got them out of town and then we had to go miles. See, there was only, in the finished two transporters, there was only two, two transporters that you could put the tank on. So we had to drive these tanks and do you know how far it is from Bari up through Foggy, right up? They'd done a lot of mileage, a lot of those tanks, by the time they got up to where the fight started. So uh, I went over and, and joined this unit. I was all by myself posted to this unit, which was called 227. It was a recently um, formed unit out of the engineers. It was called 27 Mechanical Equipment Company. And I was drafted to that. The OC gave me a, an interview and said, what do you do in civvy life? And I told him, oh, thank God for that, he said. We've got trucks off charge, we've got batteries flat, we've got this, everything. Okay, so you're in headquarters, he says. That's where you're going and you're going to, you know, be auto electrician. Okay. Typical army, you get drafted into these things. You don't, 
You're not even given a voltmeter or an ammeter or you got nothing. You got no tools even. So you go around the trucks pinching all the tools that you can out of their toolboxes that they come out with till you've got yourself a pair of pliers and a screwdriver and whatever. Tom McLennan and Ted Gatfield remember the effort that went into erecting a Bailey Bridge, which was a superb kit set design. When it came to erecting a bridge, it was all hands on deck. All sections were going to, the whole company would turn out for it mainly. And then all work they just, well everybody knew what to do. And, and there was, as I say, I think it was six men to a panel. And then you, sometimes you had a double-double. I've forgotten how many tons that would take. Um, yeah, it was hard work. A marvellous bridge, you know, it was marvellous the way it, you know, there's only three parts of it, you know. And it wasn't complicated, you know. It was just all, um, you know, three men lift, four men lift, two men lift, you know, it was all lift. <laughs> Pulling and tugging and pushing and carrying on. Wonder we didn't get broken backs the way we had to lift. Especially if you weren't a tall guy and you had tall guys in the front of you on carrying handles and you were in the back. As soon as they lifted, oh, you'd get it, you know. <laughs> And then the timber went across the f flooring, and then they put, say, two nine by ones right through, 18 inches each one wide for the traffic to go over. And of course, everything had to, you had to learn to be so quiet, you know. And you can imagine trying to be quiet when you've got two steel panels coming together to put a pin in, you know, and you had to ease be very careful to come up to the last to the next panel you know and don't clank it or click it because the enemy will hear it and, and then you had a man on putting locating the holes and putting the pin in you see well you can imagine what abuse he used to get because he was fumbling around uh, and and he had to give orders to lift it your end up and put this way that 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 and of course everybody's saying you know for God's sake, put the bloody pit in <laughs> It was always a circus, you know. With that poor guy that was putting the pin in, he really had the easiest job. He wasn't lifting, he only had to put the pin in. But the abuse he took because he was <laughs> not getting there, not making the job. I was really amazed at some of the engineering feats that, you know, they had they'd made some of our old tanks the bridge on them that folded out like that and then folded back in again and it would drive into a, a canal if it wasn't too deep and fold itself out and of course the engine would have probably sucked up a lot of water and everything in the meantime but anyhow when it was gone then um, uh, everybody gave a hand if you were around to drag it all out and then somebody would try and waterproof it again and get it going for the next time. And the pontoon bridges really amazed me. The, the engineers did a fantastic job with those. And then I was pulled into driving. I drove a, a, uh, an Armand car and there was this bloke Jack Paddy and his mate Bob Commit was his name and they were radio experts, and this car was rigged up for that. Yeah, and from then on, uh, um, 
William Bust and, uh, and then went up towards uh, the Sango River. And that's where we, we, um, we stopped. We had to build a bridge across the Sangro and um, uh, we were there for quite some time, as a matter of fact. And on the Sangro River, we had to, and I was trying to think about today, we had to stay three or four days. It was just the three of us there. We'd go back to camp, get our meals, and sit there. And I think it was the, oh, the Germans were shelling and that. I, I don't really know. But they were there with the radios, night and day, in case anything went wrong. And the Sangro River was the first Bailey Bridge that I saw. We were on duty there all the time for about a fortnight. When, when we first got into the real nasty part of it, and all the houses had been, been shelled, and there was an old couple they could hardly walk, living in the basement. And, and they looked as if they were starving. So I took over a couple of tins of bully beef and you'd have thought I'd have given them a million dollars, you know. And, and then we go back, we were only about 50 yards away and it was snowing. And the old lady came out of the shovel and she could hardly walk. She was limping away. And she gets out in the snow there and starts digging. And out of it came a big cabbage. And she staggered over to me, Pervoy, Voy juvenile, which means you are young. Well, and then the tears nearly came down my eyes, you know. Imagine an old lady doing that. And it's probably the only cabbage they had left. But there were so many people that nearly starved, old people that, that couldn't, they couldn't run away. We had bulldozers, um, uh, D6s and D8s, and uh, we made our own roads down into the, uh, the bridge. And of course, all the rivers in Italy had um, stop banks to stop the rivers flooding. And, and the rivers came up and uh, we made uh, a set off and uh, um, built a bridge across the channel and uh, the first person to come up to use it was Tony Freiberg and they uh, got him across. They called it the Tiki Bridge. It was the first bridge we did in Italy and then we went from there across the uh, into a place called um, Castle Frontano. If you look at Italy, the map of Italy is there's a central range of mountains that go right up, and you've got a hundred mile vision always, and I could soon tune in. And, and the same thing if you lit your fires at night, to uh, uh, you had to be careful of no greenery stuff on. Or, uh, otherwise, I'd be like the bloody Indians. A smoke trailer go up, and I'd uh, the the Jerry artillery would uh, would send a few stonks over and things like that. Well, first of all, we had to go past the brickworks, and the brickworks had a big chimney which 
was about 60 foot or 100 foot high and our job was to blow this bloody chimney down because the Germans were um, uh, ranging on this bloody chimney and getting causing a lot of the uh, an awful lot of trouble so we blew the bloody chimney down and uh, then went into um, uh, Castle Fontano and then it started to snow and the snow went was about three foot deep. I got through so far and I forgot the name of the place we were in for Christmas Day. Uh, Sonia, I think. I know it, it snowed Christmas Day and all the um, blacks who'd been overseas for a while were out there rolling in the snow and fighting with it. They were rolling around and because this chap, Jack Paddy and Bob Comet, we went out on a special job with the infantry. And we were there for about three days, I think. Don't know what we're supposed to do. And Christmas morning, this chap came round and he said, uh, well, I was up. And uh, he passed some comment. He said, you blokes can go home. He said, we don't want you. Or something like that, and uh, he said, where are your mates? I said, they're still asleep. And he said, well, I'll bring your breakfast over and you can go. And that was Christmas Day, I know, we arrived back and we were up in the infantry lines or somewhere, but... And uh, the sergeant, transport sergeant, came along, he said, Tom, I said, yes, Jim. He said, we want you to drive number three. I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, they want you to drive them. I said, oh, oh well, I said, what happens to the driver? I said, we'll transfer him out of the outfit. So I drove number three, and from then on, right through, number three section and one battalion. They took us up to uh, Casino, and we we were camped about uh, about a mile and a half from the from the um, Casino Abbey. Yeah, we could see it there quite plain in the distance. But we were camped in, in an olive grove, and alongside us there there was American 155mm guns, and they were firing up dropping shells on the, on, on the casino abbey. Uh, every time they fired up, I mean, we were only in pup tents dug in and um, just about turned our tent inside out every time they fired. Well, well i just taken over driving the truck. I've forgotten where it was when they... I was sort of stuck onto it, and we went to this place in the casino there, and we were actually about a mile and a half actually out of casino on this riverbed, and um, if you went up the top, as I said, this face, you could see right down, and you could see Monte Casino, and you could see the up on our right was the. Um, 
or a little monastery or something it was, and the Germans were still in, and they were still in casino, or up in the monastery. We'd taken over a house. Uh, well, uh, uh, by this time we were up at casino, and we'd taken over a house about 1,500 yards from the, the town, and it was full of Italians. And there was a balcony right around it, and the Germans used to come over, the shifty kites, uh, that's the planes with the cameras and that used to come over. Uh, and you, you could see movements, uh, and they had their guns in caves up the casino, up the mountain. And they used to pull them out for a few shots and go back into the cave and things like that. And then the planes would come over. And I always remember, this is a, we had one bloke we called Deffy. He was as deaf as anything. He'd be blown up, and he was in a a scout car with a um, a double um, Bren guns on it. And the Germans came down with two planes, and. He was in his t uh, in the scout car and he was firing at him, and they went behind the house, and he was still firing at him. And all the boys on the balcony were jumping here, left, and inside, and, and out. And then the plane came out the, the other side of the house, and he's still firing. Oh bloody deafy! And uh, shit, we give them bloody assholes after that. Uh, we're going to take the machine guns off him, but he never did it again anyhow. All these trucks came in alongside us. Guess who was driving them? Big woman like this. Our eyes nearly popped out to see great big fat women driving these trucks. And the poles came in alongside us. But the ones that didn't impress us at all were the Goons. And they were the North African ones uh, that carried a, a knife like a Gurkha's. You know. And the it wasn't funny at all. In a, in a, when, when the weather was real bad, and we had to all take our turn on guard duty, you know, down, down, just down below the Monte Casino, where we were, where we were hooked up there in the snow. And there's two of us there with their Thompson machine guns in the dark. And you know what fireflies are like? They, they, they light up all the time. A little torch. Their tails light up all the time. I believe it's a mating thing, but anyway. <laughs> you'd be in the dark and all one of these lights would be right in front of you, you know. And you'd hear something move and... Anyhow, the, something did move. And I, I called Hole. And this great, big, tall guy stood up and said in broken English, I am a French officer and I have 60 men here and I want to go to your headquarters immediately. Well, he could have been a German or anything in the clothes he's wearing and he's in broken English and we couldn't see 60 guys, the two of us. So we started to ask him questions and he got very angry with us. I want your headquarters immediately. And then suddenly he went like this. And out of the ground came 60 of these gooms that we'd never seen in the darkness with their shining big, you know, the big things like it. 
Yeah. And um, or we could say uh, the French people are that way. <laughs> we, it was two guys on their own in the middle of the, the grapevines and sexy goons with their big knives. And of course there was an artillery, um, it was a French artillery uh, unit down below that had bombed us by mistake. But uh, uh, they, the problem is with those guys, they weren't used to living in a, in a civilised country. And uh, we, we've even had to threaten some of them that were attacking the women with Tommy guns to make them buzz off because they were attacking in a couple of cases. Hardly any women around, but in the, in the case where there was, they, they were attacking the women. That's, that was the, the goons and the Poles, and, and then we, we had the uh, Free French. They, they were another... There was some of the French people themselves, but mainly there were these goons with French officers. And a lot of uh, British, of course. On the night of the 17th and 18th of February 1944, the New Zealanders made their first attempt to try and take Casino in what was the second battle of Casino. We were making abutments so we could launch bridges over the Rapido River, which was only a, a very deep river, but very narrow, and uh, uh, making a hole in the stock bank so we could launch a bridge and uh, putting in abutments uh, of uh, logs so we had a level platform to launch these things and uh, we were doing recce's uh, reconnaissance over the, the other side at, at night um, but that was mainly our, our job one night we went to a job a casino and on my truck there were 16 of us, including myself, and there was only uh, six of us came back. They weren't all killed, a lot of them were very badly wounded in that, but there were a few killed and um, this casino episode when we had the, all the casualties, <coughs> we had Americans who'd been drafted into our crowd for a while. They were experts on folding bridges on the back of their truck. And we had one lot come in, and then well, I think they stayed about six weeks, and another lot came in, and we had to go out in a job one night, and one, there was a great big fellow, I've forgotten his name, he said, where are you going, Tom? I said, we're apparently going down to do a job down the river. I said, something to do with sandbagging. I said, I don't know. He said, I'm coming. I said, you better go and see the officer. So he went and asked him, yeah, sure. So he went down there. And uh, the boys, there was a, a bloke, a Maori chap, built like a big tank, and another fellow, white boiler. And they were in the water pulling these sandbags out and this chap in the fridge was staying with me up in the truck, watching. Oh, so I'll go down. So he went down there. 
And he looked closely at these fellows were absolutely euclid. He said, come on, he said, step out you two. And he got in the water up to about his waist and he one out, one out. No effort. So when the casino episode came on, we went in, as I say, well, in other words, we had a Bailey bridge up and it was all but completed. And they were putting boards down and you nailed them and New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. So, of course, it blew the bridge to pieces and blew it in these fellows. And on their way back, these Americans were going in and they radioed back to camp and they were doing it all on radio, how to turn, which road to take, say, and so. And they got there and they backed for a quarter of a mile with their truck in the dark. I think it was about three o'clock in the morning, something like that. And they got there and they put this thing in the straight and laid the bridge and apparently that well there were infantry were waiting to go and, and tanks went over straight away. I know that they were all decorated because I got back to camp and I said to them, sergeant there, I said, so-and-so, I said, want a bottle of whiskey? He said, okay, Tom. So they brought out a bottle of whiskey and this and that. And these boys arrived back oh, three or four hours later and I said, do you boys like a drink? And, oh, yeah. What do you drink, whiskey? And I think they might only have one drink each. And I said, oh, God, we can't drink that stuff. <laughs> the rest of us, we could. I suppose half the time we got home we'd get a bit full and closed me if you could. Yeah. Eric Bullen was right up the front with the Murray Battalion and other engineers. We were in the railway station at Casino and uh, the Germans counter-attacked and they came in with a bloody tank and uh, we, the Maori boys, two eight battalion were in there and we were all together and it was about one in the morning and uh, uh, the railway line came right down into Casino and, and that's the way we'd got in and uh, we scapiried and, and dashed up the track flat out and i never forget that if you've ever run flat out on a railway line and hit every sleeper, uh, it's an amazing what you can do. In other words, the sleepers, you know, are fairly close together, so you had to take uh, short strips. We lost about seven or eight men that night, and uh, Maori's lost a few too, because, as I say, the Germans came in with a bloody tank, and you didn't bugger around. A month later, in March 1944, New Zealanders made another attempt to take the town of Casino. This would be the third battle of Casino. And this time, they got into the town. But of course, once we got into um, Casino proper, with all the bombing that the, uh, the Air Force had done, they blocked every street. And the whole, the whole of Casino City was one mass of rubble, and you couldn't get your tanks in. And the Jerry's were holed up in, in these bloody places and uh, 
The only way you could get them, we had one um, engineer, Sergeant Major, um, and he brought a, a, a case of uh, jellignite down, put a fuse in it and a debt, and put it alongside a wall and blew the whole freaking wall out and got the... He carried us in on himself. He got a, um, a gong out of that. I always remember that particular one, but it was a hell of a place. We were about three and a half months at casino. Well, we were there. They'd send us up each, every now and again to uh, fill up bomb craters because when they bombed the monastery, they weren't very accurate. They bombed anything where but the bloody thing. And there was bomb craters everywhere. And uh, we had to either fill them in with, um, they used a uh, big bundles of um, more sticks, like bushes, all wrapped up tight. And you drop one of these in, in the hole to fill up the worst of it and then uh, fill it over with gravel. But we had to do this at night time because otherwise, I mean, they could see us what from the monastery in no trouble at all. When, they, when the guns fired, they usually fired over the top of us because we were too close. And they probably thought we were further away than we were. At times we'd go up to up as far as the railway station, and I remember once looking uh, at a building there, and, and on the second story there was all the wall had been blown out, and inside there were stacked about oh you could see about six bodies. It must have been a, a, an ambulance station, and they left the stowed the bodies up there for a burial, a temporary morgue probably to, before they could bury them, because uh, we lost quite a few blokes there. We had to build a a road up around the the back of casino, so that the troops could get up. Had to clear the clear the land of it because they were up on the top of the hill there, and what they used to do they the, the roll roll the mines down the hill <laughs> to, to catch the blokes attacking. And in the finish, the only way we could get at it was to attack from the back, and the Indians came in, Fourth Indian Brigade and things like that, and at the back of Casino was a mountain called Monte Cairo, and that was as, uh, virtually as high as Mount Cook. And it was great vision from that as well. Casino was the worst place of the lot. Well, just I know our two officers, and the officer's driver were doing something, and the Germans started shooting. And the two officers just dived to the ground, and this silly bugger tried to get behind a tree, and fellow caught him in mid-air. He was killed, and he was a married man too. But because um, when he come back, you know, the officer said, "Oh, they said the silly bugger." They said, "Because we're all taught, you know, after the fight, you just drop straight to the ground." 
Well, that was, it must have been after Casino. It was. Because, as I say, there was 16 on my corporal, he got killed. And he and I used to sleep on the back of the truck. We had boards across from one side to the other. And I got back to camp and this bloke, and he was a lot older than me, an Irish fella, bald-headed. He said, move in here, Tom. I went into his bivvy. And um, anyhow, they were having a few drinks around. and they, so I put my mug down and got a mug full of liquor. My oh, God, terrible stuff. So I went down, I thought, oh, and I, I said to one of the boys, I said, oh, I'm going for a walk. So I went down the one platoon, a fella called Sergeant, he was a North Auckland back. And he'd been out on a recce with another fella and they got their wine and then they started to have one little bit and they said, oh God, that's bloody terrible. And this bloke was a sergeant and he said, I've got a bottle of whiskey and he tipped the whiskey in with the wine. I'll tell you what, we all got pretty full that night. And my, my I remember getting back to the next morning, getting out, get your mug to go down for a cup of tea and breakfast and all the enamel on the inside of the mug was gone. And I said to this other fellow, oh, Tom, terrible the name. I said, look at this. I said, oh, said, that's all right. And that bloke came home very, quite early from Italy and he was killed six weeks after he got back in New Zealand. Wow. He's a hell of a good black team. His name was Paddy Presnell. That's the chap I debuted with. And he was bald-headed, quite now. I think he could have been Irish, been out in New Zealand quite a while. And we all had to go to this job, and I was driving. And I know we had to back up a long way, and the officer said, everybody out, so the boys all got off. Go on, put on your mind detectors, and good. And take your rifles. So the fellas, well, my rifle used to be right behind the seat, and then black fool go down, got their rifles. And the officer said something, the major he was, come on, let's go. I've got this breach to do or something to do. And Paddy Presnell, he said, what are we bloody well doing? He threw his rifle from 20 feet away in the back of the truck. Come on, boys, he said, we don't want rifles. He said, we've got to find bloody mines. And they all threw them back, and the Major just apparently next morning came around and he said, thank you, boys, he said. There was no red tape about that afterwards. And I know Paddy came back and I was there and he said something. Oh, he said, silly buckets. He said, how can you fire a rifle? you got things over your ears, you couldn't hear anything. But, uh, oh, no, it was... Hell of a lot of good sorts you met. I was, one night we were doing a job and we had a fellow from Dannyburg. He'd been over there quite a long time. And they hadn't mined the roadway, but just on either side where you'd normally walk, they'd mined that. And I could see this mine sticking up 
Yes, my name they were called. And I got out, I said, so and so, I'll give you a hand, wait a minute. He said, keep back, Tom, I know what I'm doing. And he did, he left me, pushed the thing aside, and put the pen through and lift the mine out and tossed it aside. And that was about the only time I can actually remember going into the field with live mines. Pat Green was actually in the infantry, but he spent a short time doing the work of a sapper, clearing mines. He explains what was involved. And they sent us out laying mines. It was an engineer's job. I, on the way up, I'd got out of a, a services bloody illustrated paper, and it, it, it was devoted to the engineers, and it said, these blokes lay mines. And they get the mine and they, they get another box with the detonators in and they uh, carefully insert the detonators in the, the recess that that river disclosed in the mine and then they took it. And then they put it in position and they lined it up with compasses to put them in straight lines and they put them uh, uh, so, so many feet apart so that if they're too close, one would go off and it would sympathetic detonation would set the, lo the whole lot off. A shell could do, uh, knock one out, start one up, and uh, so they were staggered. But the, the, uh, these kind of mines were uh, invariably uh, for tanks, or transport, and it took over 200 uh, pounds weight to uh, shear the wire that released to hammer onto the needle that darted into the, had a spring that sent it in, the needle into the detonator. And uh, <clears throat> so we could walk through minefields, providing there were no, um, the kind of mines that uh, were used for infantry. Uh, we had a couple of different ones. One of them was about like a, about the size of a tin of spaghetti of 400 mils and it was a container and it had another container inside it and there were three little wire prongs that stuck up and all you saw was about an inch of black wire or it might even be brown wire and that if you stood on that you pushed it down and it set a detonator that set a uh, a time fuse of four seconds. Well, you couldn't run 40. You, you might run 100 metres in 10 seconds if you're a, a, an Olympian, but with army boots on and army gear, uh, you wouldn't run very far. But you heard this bloody thing click if you stood on it, and it threw the inside canister up about six feet and an explosion, uh, explosive in the basement uh, went off and it threw uh, nasty pieces of metal all around in a semicircle. And they were S mines and they were very nasty. And we had uh, another one about the size and shape of a shoe box, a uh, cigar box. And it had you wouldn't see anything in, if you walked on it. 
it would go straight up instantly and you'd uh, you'd be minus a foot. Uh, Brigadier uh, Kippenberg, yeah, he, he lost one foot completely and half of the other one on uh, Million Dollar Ridge, at, uh, which was about 3,000 3, yards from, from Casino Village. He had gone up on there to have a look at the village uh, to do prepare a plan of tax on the village and uh, it walked in the shoe mine and uh, there was no metal on, on them except the detonator itself which is aluminium and uh, so they didn't register on uh, mine for, for engineers had mine finding gear we didn't have any Percy had been with us for about three years you know we called him Pongo Pierce because he was a poly, you know, and he went out on a, um, a, a mine clearing mission and uh, he was clearing a roadblock and the roadblock was a, an old dray with a, it was under a tree and they tied a, a hand grenade up in the tree and down to the the, the, the the handle of the cart and when he moved the cart it pulled the bloody trigger and it blew up in his face and um, he died the next day. Previously he nearly got killed as well and he was he thought oh, they're gonna get me <laughs> because he, he was he knew somehow, you know, that his time was up. He was married with a, a with one kitty too. Yeah, you worked on some of the roads. Um, you carted timber sometimes. I, my truck, well, I came back and uh, I'd had a bit of a day out with these Americans. And I came back and my truck was loaded with timber. And I said, what's going on? This is a casino. And they said, you've got to do something. And they said, you can't go, McLean, you're drunk. Well, I, I got sober. And then I had to go and they said, you've got to take a spare driver. I said, you, you recommend, you send somebody. No, no, you're going to pick your own. So I went to the headquarters and got this Jack Paddy. I said, you want to go to casino, Jack? Because he worked in the audio room those days. He said, why? I told him. He said, OK, Tom, I'll come with you. And we got up, and the officer was with us in a jeep, and we got right up, and those bullets were just in front of us all the way. So I said, come on, Jack, we better sit down behind the wheel. So we did that. Anyhow, that was the only time I ever actually I suppose got that close to it, or might have been other times, but uh, I knew it that night. And anyhow, the officer came out, he said, Turn the truck round, Tom, he's going to unload all that timber there. And then there was another time at all in the early parts of in Italy, they were uh, 
or putting timber down for roading, you know, across the road and down road. And there was a chap, he would say time as me, and they were doing this and this officer, Philip L.B. Vert, he was a nice bloke, but he was the, he was a, I don't know what rank captain, eh? and this George said, you don't know what you bloody well talking about, so and so, he said, you do it this way. Okay, Scanlon, you take over. George said, come on boys, and he, this George had done mainly bushwork up until the time we went out, you know, building roads in the bush and that. And I've always smiled to myself, Albert Vert came back to New Zealand and he was a big chief in Auckland, or just out of Auckland, so many engineering. But most of them, they all were good sorts. And another place, oh, we put up bridges here and there, but I think it was in a place called Sora. And the town had been blown, well, they'd blown the bridge and it's cut the town in half. Anyhow, all the engineer companies, the three of us, it was six, seven, eight. And I remember the sixth field, I'm pretty sure, had put the piers up from the river. And, and our crowd, the seventh, were building the actual bridge. And there were just hundreds of Italians turned up. And when they come, you you put your bridge on, you build a big nose on it for balance, and then you push from behind. Well, of course, the Italians all saw us in that, so they all got in. And then, I don't know, it was a, oh, like a tractor with a front end loader come along, and they turned up. And they said, oh, you stand aside, you hobos, we'll push. So they pushed. And we're, we're right at the finish, it was just about, and each section went on, six foot I think they were long, and it took six men, that's right, there was, I think it was six, it might have been four, four men. And of course, the bridge hasn't got out further and further because they didn't bother with this thing to push it. They got away up on the, uh, Padre was there, and he saw the fighter boys and he put it, and the chaps at the back eased them and took his finger completely off. <laughs> the war was sort of well past it, but uh, they built that because the town, was, the river, cut and there was very steep banks and that. This bloke I was thinking about, I was lifting the mines. He. When he used to get even, he'd been over there quite a long time. And if he had a few too many drinks, he used to sort of choke. Well, his mate, who had been there and was a fourth reinforcement, used to do something to him, get hold of him, because he came from Danibet too, and he'd, Alan Bullock knew them both, and they'd shove a spoon down his throat. Did. <laughs> well, this other, Bruce, no, I can't think of his name. He came home and bags were still there. Well, it happened to him, and we didn't know what to do. Some of us gave him a belt on the back, and now oh, you silly old bugger. Anyhow, they rushed him away to hospital. And, well, that's why right. this is a soaring, yeah. And uh, 
I was in camp. We'd taken the blacks up the trucks and then came back to camp. And this fella turned up <laughs> underpants, shirt, now or singlet or something, and I said, What are you doing here, Bags? Oh, he said, I'm not keeping me in bloody hospital. Tell me, where are the boys? I said, building a bridge. Oh, he said, I'm going too. I said, don't, don't be silly. I said, you don't have... Tom, I want to go. And he went over to headquarters and he got the QM fella. And he, said, oh, he said something to an officer at the beginning. He said, yeah, and got the QM. And got Came back five minutes later, all dressed up, pants, shirt, boots on. He said, come on, Tom. He said, you have to take me up to... I said, I do. So he got in the truck and we drove up to... And that's when I, I stayed there most of the time then and watched them working. After Casino fell, uh, we took off and away up to uh, Rome. And the Casino was actually guarding Highway 6, which was the Appian Way, built by the Romans. And, uh, uh, and that was a straight road for bloody miles and, and miles and uh, uh, that sort of thing. So we went up into places like Sora and and, uh, and bypassed Rome. And we were on the road going somewhere and we were all in line. Little village, anyhow they, they were shelling and I don't know how I stopped. And I don't reckon I ever opened the door. I went over the side of the truck into there was a drain sort of beside us. So anyhow they kept on shelling and I sort of stood up and there was nothing well, not laying right beside it. So I said to them, shift your trucks over there and the rain and big Anyhow, I drove mine over, and then one bloke, he said, I'm not getting in again, so I shifted his truck over. Anyhow, we all did that. And then, the next morning or something, I looked, <laughs> shrapnel had gone right through my seat, and I had a bag at the back with clothing on, you know, and gone right through that too. That was a, perhaps, oh, I don't know, sometimes I got, Casino was bad, but uh, you had a lot of fun too, I suppose, a lot of little things that happened you could laugh at and enjoy. We were there one day, one Sunday morning having church parade, and there'd be 30 or 40 bikes standing in this riverbed on the banks. and. The German plane was coming and we were all watching it. And you could see these shells dropping. So the Padre said, I think we'd better go to cover. And the Germans, where we were, had cut uh, slit trenches all up this bank. So I don't know where the hell I went. I didn't go up there, I know that. But anyhow, the Blake's Lodman took up and plane had gone and we were there and the Padre said, we'll sing the last verse and I've forgotten what it was. And then we sort of looked round <laughs> and right up the top of this thing was a chap there with his pants off and a mate looking <laughs> and he'd been badly wounded during the 
in Egypt. And, but anyhow, we found out afterwards there was not actually mines they were dropping, there were um, pamphlets sort of exploding to explode. I think you'd been hurt if the head gone off, I don't know, but uh, I know it was rather humorous at the time because whatever the hymn was, and then everybody, even the padre started to laugh and called out, Are you all right, so and so? Yes, sir, we'll just have me look. He thought he'd get a bit of shrapnel on his backside. <laughs> but then I had another, where we were, they shelled us. And I and my friend and his mate were there, and they said, Let's get in the armor car. So they dived and they came, and a bloody shell landed just away, and shrapnel came back and into the car, and down his the glass down his side of his face. Oh no. <laughs> and there was no shelling uh, in Rome on either side. I think there must have been some pact somewhere there um, because the Germans just got out of there. Uh, there was a funny thing there that that was about Casino before I got to the to the division. Uh, the Fifth Army, the American Army were going to go. There was a bit of a tug of war between the American Fifth Army and the Eighth Army. You know, um, what's his name? You know, our outfit. Um, who was going to get to Rome? That was the big prize. That was where the, every, the generals were going to get their medals. And so basically, the generals are saying, "Who is going?" You know, and the Americans won. They were going to take Rome after we'd lost all the casualties, and they lost a hell of a lot of men too on that casino trip. Um, why the, the hell they didn't just circle the blimmin' hill around it so that the, they couldn't get any provisions, they just starved them out without any casualties at all. But there's no sense in half these generals. Um, um, decisions. Um, it, it's all who, who, who's, who's, who's going to get the kudos. Who's going to get the medals for doing this, that, and the other thing. Instead of worrying about how many men you're going to lose, that's immaterial. I felt their attitudes were childish. But the Americans, anyway, are going to go into Rome. We, everybody, late time, he stood back, let them go. And the Germans knew they were coming, and they left Rome, just on their own, you know, just. And then they heard that the Yanks weren't going to go, and they all came back to Rome again. It was a proper circus. <laughs> and, uh, however, finally, I don't know who got there finally, whether we did or not. Um, but we weren't far behind them anyway. We were very close um, to, to Rome. I think we all sort of ended up there more or less at the same time. Freiburg was very good uh, from our point of view. He, he, got, he got into Rome before the Yanks and, and secured the best hotel in Rome for the New Zealand club. So the Americans dipped out there. <laughs> um, yeah. And we went to... Four of us went... I don't know how many, but there were so many and they could sort of keep in the club.
and the rest you had to go into an army place. And we went to this place, went out this army place, and these two fellows were being right through, well, not, most of both through Egypt. And they were a lot older than us. And they said, the hell with this, we're not staying here. So they talked to somebody else and right. So we got back into Rome and uh, they had it. I don't know how they knew, but we, we went into a place and I don't think it cost very much, I've forgotten. And we stayed there for the whole week. Our meals and just go to the club and have our meals, drinks and that. There were concerts on there and entertainment. Oh, I walked around Rome quite a bit. I went to see a show that was the Kiwi concert party one day. Um, <laughs> the Yanks were real fool when they saw that, when the, when the guys all took their wigs off, you know. <laughs> they were, you know, standing up in the seat saying, God damn, you know, I thought that was... <laughs> they were funny, yeah. New Zealand, oh, I saw it a couple of times, one place I... It was out somewhere, I've forgotten where it was, and the Americans turned up, there were hundreds at it. But, uh, oh yes, they were great. They'd get yeah. some of them and they'd start clapping a bit and, and somebody would pick up a guitar and start and there'd be dead silence. And I know we were sitting on a hill, and I wouldn't, there could have been a couple of thousand there. And they were in this sort of great big tent and make a platform outside. And God, and of course, every time they say the Yanks, when they finished, they'd be clapping and yelling, more, more, more. And a couple of blokes to get on the saxophones and this and that, or guitars and sing, and oh, they were great. Talk about food. Um, joining this unit before we pulled out, my first meal, because we'd been told in every army camp that we'd ever been in and moaning about the food, the food was rubbish and we had strikes and all sorts of things. And we're always told by the old people, the old soldiers, wait till you get to the overseas, you'll be on bully beef and biscuits, do you think this food's rough? Wait till you get there, you know? And I thought, oh, that's okay, this is good. I lined up for my first meal in this unit with my mess Dixies and roast beef was put on that pig and gravy and roast potatoes and roast and I said to one of the I've never seen food like this since I left mum's <laughs> and I said to one of the old digs I said well what's What's this? Is it some sort of party or is it, you know, a celebration? Shit, no, he says. Unless we get food like this, to be bloody hell to pay. Oh, I thought, this is good. At least I'm going to die. I'm going to die by the first time. And from then on, we always did have good food. No, we had um, cooks. Two or three in each in our sec well, there was two in our section and the I was trying to think the other day the 
they were talking about, and the things were like a on the ground, a big long sort of tunnel affair, and the fires would come up, you know, and we had two excellent cooks. We had two good cooks in our unit that roasted things in a camp oven. Everything was just on camp ovens and then Dixies on the ground, you know, with big blow lamps to heat up the trench. And you had the oven right at the end of the trench and you had the mess Dixies, you know, and uh, those boys were good. And uh, they really looked after us in, in our little unit. There's only about 50 of us in headquarters. So it was a, a real, you know, good good place to be. The Americans, when they came to us the first time, then they just cried. We called our masses ready and went over and we all take our Texas over. They said, what's going on? I said, oh. And I, I could have been sort of a, a roast dinner, I've forgotten now. And they said, Christ. You blokes always, oh yeah, just about. God, my bloody great life you got. In our camp we only get spaghetti and this and that. But we always got raw roast meats or steaks or I don't know. We were never hungry. And they certainly were. The cooks were always great. And uh, we always, even as I say, had good food because we had two damn good cooks. And they, they, you know, were in an unfortunate position in a way because wherever we went and we could cut down and shelter from shell fire and things, those poor buggers had to work through it and, and get the meal prepared for the rest of us. Otherwise, they were, they were as you can imagine, they were rubbish. <laughs> if they said, well, we haven't got no tea ready tonight because it was too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't go down well, would it? Sometimes you'd, uh, if you were moving about and you pulled up there, and the path just always make me laugh, and they were mainly South, South Islanders. You'd be going on and then be sort of pull up convoys and that, and there'd be three or four of them there, out of their bloody tracks, uh, thermets, Tin little tin of petrol and then have it boiling and sometimes they get the water boiling and have a cup of tea and then you see a bloke track start the room they put their foot over the petrol tin to stop it and get back in with their tea and that. But they were mainly I always felt they were mainly South Island fellows who lived in oh back country, all that. But they, they loved their tea and the... Most of the engineers, it's funny, a big percentage of engineers came from the South Island. I don't know why. The army was funny like that. They had areas that they picked people from or something. I don't know how it worked. Um, it didn't work well because very often you had square pegs and round holes all the time. You know, you'd have a bridge builder uh, during one stop two in the infantry, you know, and 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 you'd be training a, 
an office worker to build a bridge and the engineers, you know, it was very poorly, you know, uh, how can I put it, you know, square pigs or, you know, selecting uh, your units and getting the best men to do the best job. That was something the Army didn't seem to understand. You were just a whole lot of numbers and if you fell on your feet doing something, you were bloody lucky, you know. Yeah. Following the fall of Rome, the New Zealand Division continued to move north. Along the way, they encountered a number of skirmishes with the Germans as they headed towards the major objective, which was the city of Florence. It was a messy time, and and because uh, we weren't far from Siena, uh, there was a lot of um, how shall I put it? You know, we we knew what we were doing on the Adriatic there, but when we got up there, mm. from one day to the other, people hardly knew you know whether you were going that way or that way, and then. They'd get orders because the old Kiwi had to do what they were told. You know, the Americans were telling Freiburg where he had to go, and one day he's doing this, and the next day he's doing that. It was a it was a wonderful thing how they saved majority of Florence, and I think that the credit did go to some of the German generals and our own negotiators that that. It was sort of spared all that. You notice the Ponte Vecchio, they didn't blow the bridge. They blew the buildings at each end so nobody to go across. But it's a wonderful thing to see that, you know, that, that would have lost one of the greatest pieces of history, Ponte Vecchio. Well, lots of places we had a lot of fun. We went place when we went to Florence. We were in a sort of a hotel thing just out and they had, there was no fighting only on the verges of Florence. And they did the same in Rome and they sort of moved over because things have been, you know, the mess that they'd made at Casino and that. And we were sent up on a, a water thing to see the water was very short. And we're all sitting around. We were, and they had a big water tank there and sitting around there and this girl came along and they said, Jeez, look at her, she bloody nice. Look at the boobs on her, boy. And one of the chaps got up and he went over and he said, something about water. And they said, and anyhow, some of them replied in Italian. And he looked at this girl, God, she got a lovely pair of boobs in you. She said, mind your own business, mister. And she was a, some, oh, I forgot what, she was an Italian. Well, and they lived up, and they had a big mansion up on the side of the hill. We were there for quite a while. That's all we did, they was, uh, I know, Bill Shaw drove, brought the water in there and emptied it into this tank and, all the Italians would come and get their water. And then from then we, I remember we went back from there, back into, or through Florence, back into the lines again. Following the fall of Florence, the New Zealand Division then went back east to the Adriatic side of Italy, and then the whole push came to a halt for winter at the Senio River.
As the Allies sat on one side of the Senio and the Germans on the other, Ted Gatfield remembers there was time to take a bit of a break from the front lines. The, um, the, the whole division pulled out of the front line and all the subsidiary units pulled out for a spell, for, for a rest period because we've been holding, the infantry have been holding a line uh, on, on the on the Senio River. We've been holding that line all winter because, you know, it was a very comfortable war and nobody fought in the winter time because we're too cold and it was muddy and you couldn't make any progress. And so the line was being held till the springtime, which was going to be the big offence of the last push. Um, so we all went back and had a holiday way back in the middle of Italy, in a nice spot, a nice farm spot, and we were supposed to get all our trucks and all our gear prepared, ready and going and not breaking down. And and then we moved up to the front line at a set time. And uh, we were we were just back on the line. And then for, for about two weeks, there was bombardment, there was shells coming in, shells going out. We were about two miles, I suppose, parked in a paddock back from the front line. And most of the engineer units were, were back away from the, the firing line and only went up to, the, to that line when there was things to do, like a building a bridge or repairing a road or something like that, and then you'd come back out of the way, which was good. Um, and old Halloway, that was a mechanic, he was a sergeant mechanic. He, he got the sergeant's rank because he was a mechanic and yeah, and uh, he and I shared shared holes in the early stages, you know, dug holes in the ground to sleep in uh, when things were uh, shelling and carrying on. We never had a casualty in our unit. We were lucky. Uh, you know, no shells seemed to come in, in our area. Um, but I'll never forget old Halloran. This first big stink-up we had, this big shelling when we were waiting to to go over the Senio line. We were down in the, in the hole, and we'd never been, neither of us had ever been in this sort of situation before. And I'm a heavy sleeper, and I was fast asleep, and Halloway was a very nervous kind of guy. And, um, and he shook me up, and he said, Gap, wake up, there's something going on. It's bloody noisy, I'm getting out. So I wake up and I think, well, you're getting out. Where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sitting up there with my pyjamas on. And I thought, oh, what do you do now? I know. Put my tin hat on. <laughs> <laughs> so I put my tin hat on sitting up in my pyjamas with all this stink going on and shells going swish and swish and whizzing and whizz. And, and then it quietened down. And I thought, oh, shit, I better go and get dressed. I'll get dressed and I'll go and see where everybody's gone. 
I go up amongst the trucks, there's not a soul anywhere around. There's nobody in the trucks, there's nobody under the trucks, there's nobody in the tent, there's nobody. And I think, well, I where everybody's gone. And then I see a house way over in the distance with a little light coming out of the, of the door. And I thought, that's where the buggers all gone over there. So over there I go. Well, here's all these brave Kiwis all sitting around in this farmhouse and passing a flagon of, of vino around, you know. Oh, God, I thought, oh, well, I never drank. And I thought, oh, well, I'll have a vino. I'll, I'll have a sip of this stuff. And it must have gone pretty well through my head. It must have been powerful stuff. And everything went quiet. And, uh, you know, the, the shelling had stopped. And uh, I thought, oh, back of this. But this time I was feeling quite good. And I'm going back to bed again to hell with this out. <laughs> Which I did. And, uh, yeah. But I, I was a heavy sleeper. I, I could sleep through, you know, shelling. Yeah. And, you know, and, and th they'd look for me sometimes in the morning because I hadn't turned up. They'd think, oh, he's, he's, he's dead. Or something's happened to him. And they'd be looking for me. And I'd be fast to bloody sleep. Never had any alarm clock. Mind you, they they're always shelling till about twelve o'clock, you know, to, and then everything would go quiet. It was like a, an, you know, like a a little, uh, an, an, like a, a, a little law that they'd all made up that uh, after twelve o'clock we all need some sleep, <laughs> so let's all knock off. <laughs> it was a very cosy war. <laughs> As far as we're concerned, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We only had one guy that lost his nerve. He used to be a he was a bulldozer driver too, and he lost his nerve there. That first senio push wouldn't come out of his hole. They had to they had to send him back. You know, put him on the ambulance and send him back to the base. I don't know who he was, but he'd been in it for a bit. And he was getting his nerves for getting shattered because it was dangerous work on a bulldozer. Though you had no armor, no nothing around them. You know what the D8s and D4s, they just got a seat that you sit up doing all the bloody thing. You know? And that's not good. And and they make a lot of noise. The Germans heard the bloody bulldozer working somewhere, they bloody shell out of it if they could, you know. Bloody dangerous job. And the joker that took his place, he got mentioned in dispatches for 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 that thing. But um, was it was a bit lively there, and and as I say, that we were shelling the artillery was shelling the Jerry line at the back of the line. There was that much going on, and air airplane bombing, and it was chaotic for them because they were going backwards. Really, it was a it was a waste of time for them to be. However, um, there came the big offensive day and uh, we all got cracking and and we went over the over the river. It was un well, not a very wide river, I think. I, we ne I, we had probably had a bridge over it, I can't remember. But... Uh, uh, if there was a bridge, like the engineers 
have got about two platoons or so of a hundred men which are field engineers, called field engineers. They do the bridges, they do the lifting mines, they do all the what an engine what an engine unit building is supposed to do. And uh, then there's Field Park which is um, usually trailing about five miles behind with all the um, provisions, the panels, the transoms and all the Bailey Bridge stuff and explosives and generally the base base store travelling up slowly with everybody else. And we as a unit, 2-7 mech equipped, we had, we had sort of more the roadworks side of things. We had a fleet of dumpy trucks uh, to carry metal and fill potholes on the road and shell holes and, and then we had three bulldozers. We had a D8, a D4 uh, and a D6 and they had their transporters which, you know, big articulated transporters um, and uh, and what else did we have? Um, yeah, well, that was about that was about it. And 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 of course, <clears throat> all the stores and things that we needed, like a petrol carrying wagon that had jerry, full of jerry cans, and we had another big Mac with full of diesel cans. And uh, being in headquarters, we had all that to supply. Uh, we only had about another one platoon, I think, with people, you know, guys that were driving the tip trucks and, you know, doing the work. And uh, all I was doing was trying to keep anything electrical going, you know, in the way of the trucks and the batteries, mostly the batteries and, uh, and the communication batteries that was in the radio truck keeping contact with the base camp, you know. Um, and so it was a pretty cushy little unit to be in, and I was, you know, nicely occupied. I didn't have time to worry about anything much, about dying or... <laughs> I was too busy. <laughs> and however, the first stop over the Senio. Uh, because I, I couldn't keep up. I couldn't keep up with the batteries on the charging. It was absolutely hopeless. They'd give me a little Chev truck and 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 three single-cylinder, what they call iron horses, with just single generators on them, 12-volt generators. And these things, they had it. They were worn out. They'd, you'd get them going for an hour, and when they got hot, they'd stop. And I, I just couldn't cope. And uh, they could see this. And uh, so the next thing I knew, in all this turmoil, and it was turmoil when we went over the other side, the Jerry's were giving us hell. And um, the artillery was really hitting targets because they knew the land, they'd been there before, they knew the, the typography of the land, you know, like the back of their hand, and their, their artillery was pretty accurate. Um, and I, I, I think, I, yes, I, I was down the hole because I, I'd been knocked over by, by some concussion, fixing these damn, damn chores, and they were making so much noise I couldn't hear anything else going on. 
However, I went down my hole in the finish, I thought, bugger this. Um, and then the next minute, some of the boys came up and said, Oh, look, at you've got a new workshop truck. Oh, I said, that was the last thing I wanted to be bothered to go and have a look at. Thank you very much. I think I smoked a packet of cigarettes before I had enough courage to get out of the hole and have a look at this goddamn workshop truck. Well, here it was, great big English Fordson. Um, with all the gear in the back, lathe, power, four kilowatt power plant, with a two-cylinder uh, engine driving the thing. Typical English, crank handle, no starter, crank handle and, on a magneto for ignition. And as I learnt later on, it was what we know, now know was a Bradford engine. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible thing. And however, it drove a four kilowatt dynamo, and and uh, it it I I could I could have charged a hundred batteries on it. it was, I had ample power. And in the truck, there was a lathe, about a twenty-eight inch lathe. There was a valve refacer. There was uh, a um, drill press, grindstone, all the little things that you'd expect in a workshop truck. And the sides all folded down with vices on them for mechanics to work around the truck if it was in the field. And the canopies would just go out and form a whole big tent around the whole thing. It was very well thought out. It was brand new. It'd been, you know, how the, how the hell our unit got that thing, I don't know, but we got it. And so that was mine. They just gave it to me and said, it's yours. And here's me trying to think how it all works <laughs> in amongst in amongst a bombardment of shell fire. Concentration was not good. <laughs> Learning how to start the motor, get the thing and work the rear stats for the battery charging, and oh god. However, that kept me occupied. And then, then we had to move. We're moving on then after a couple of days. So, you know, I was the driver for the thing and everything, you know. Um, so I had no more trouble. And, and they were so protective of this truck. Wherever we went, they'd park me behind a building or, or a bloody big wall or something. They really were, the unit was treated this truck and it was always, oh, where will we put the workshop truck? And wherever it was, it was safe. And I thought, that's good, I'm with it. That makes me safe too. <laughs> oh yeah. So we just went from uh, from town to town. As the Jerry's moved out of one town, we moved in. It got shelled from both quarters. We shelled the hell out of it. And when the we moved in, the Jerry shelled the hell out of it again. Buildings were knocked down everywhere. You know, it was was bad, and then and then we just sort of carried on and on and on from one town to another, and uh, uh, I, I don't think anything really happened. We were just uh, helping ourselves to to living in houses that in these towns everybody vacated. There was nobody in them. The people had all gone. A lot of cases that hid all their furniture in the basements and locked that up, and the troops were living in any house that they could find to cut down, and it was comfortable. 
rather than live in tents and outside, being occupied was a good thing because, you know, I had my job to do and that kept me working and kept me going and, you know, not worrying about anything in particular. Oh yes, there was, there was, a, you know, there was a war for the for for the war, and 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 there was our war for keeping keeping money in your pocket. Oh yes, I shouldn't talk about the things we used to do. It was not good. Uh, the infantry never had much of a chance to do anything, but our, you know, in the engineers where you had vehicles and you could travel around and take a truck here, there, and everything like I used to. All, all my sick batteries, you know, that I had, I'd load them on a truck and take them, take them round to some back street garage, and they'd go all over them with a prong test system, and they'd be going, oh, the bone, oh, and this is not good, and I used to say, never mind, how much, lot, finish, you know, <laughs> yeah, and things like this, you know, wherever there was money to be made. Um, yeah, we used to find something to sell. Yeah, and even going up the line, the Jerry's were leaving their um, those motorbikes behind. You know that they had uh, BMWs with side chairs on them that the officers used to run around. They'd be abandoned all over the place, and somebody they'd break camp. You know, we had spare drivers usually in the trucks. And you know they'd get out and put petrol in the bloody things, and then catch up to the convoy again. You know things like that. You weren't supposed to do that sort of thing. You know, but the officers, in lots of cases, particularly the engineers, used to just turn a blind eye. They were in it themselves. <laughs> and our officers were good in so much. They weren't army men. They were usually public works men or bridge builders or, you know what I mean. They weren't army, and we never had inspections and my rifle was at the back of the truck in a in a in a hole in the back of the truck covered in dust if I'd ever had to get down I don't think of you know I don't think it would have worked <laughs> never mind I didn't have to use it but the infantry's job to take the prisoners and they were pretty arrogant too they were very the young the young guys were very arrogant but uh, I know looting or, or, you know, finding, getting money, you know, we, I remember we, there was plenty of uh, stuff in the Yankee stores uh, that you could get if you played the cards right, like if one of your trucks had a crook motor, you never, you never overhauled a motor or you never, there wasn't, there wasn't um, parts, spare parts available as such, but they'd have a whole motor. So you'd put a whole motor, you know, in a truck, or you put a gearbox, or even a generator, or a starter. I never repaired them or anything, because you couldn't get a brush, or you couldn't get any parts, so you just put the whole starter on, you see. I even started to set up my own strip what I'd taken off trucks and setting up my own spare parts department, which was absolutely ridiculous. It wasn't necessary. But being a Kiwi, you, you, you can't throw things away. You go hoarding them somewhere. You know. But there you go. And uh, <laughs> as I say, this, uh, even the officers, I say, they were in, we're, we're camped by this beautiful lake. Um, 
at, at after the war in this particular, I don't know where that was, oh, it was inland lake, I don't know, it had, it had no inlet, no outlet, but it was about a hundred yards round on a farm, very pleasant, so we could we could dive in and swim every day, you know, and it was summertime as I say, and we're only in shorts all day long, you know, doing our thing, whatever we had to do. And uh, this, the batman came down one day. This is typical. He said the officer has got four tyres down here because he's jeep. You can imagine the jeep being having worn out tyres, can't you, which is rubbish. And he got new tyres on his jeep and he had these f four old tyres, see. The batman came down one day and he said the officer's got two tyres down here. He wants me to hock off. Taking the town hock off. Oh, okay. And we were sitting on these <laughs> and Halloway and I we said, Oh, we got two tires here too, will you take those those two <laughs> and we'll cut you in on the deal. Oh good, right, good. <laughs> we sold the other two tires off the officer's cheek. I mean to say he couldn't say anything. He couldn't do anything. He had no right to sell a bloody thing. <laughs> And things like this, and we got a V8 motor one day, we hocked that off and divided it between ourselves, you know. So, well, I shouldn't say this, but for, for that time in Italy, I never touched my paybook. I never drew money. It wasn't any good to you. You couldn't, you could only, you only got a hundred acres you know, a week or equivalent to, uh, you know, to, to uh, about two, two pounds. And that hardly bought you tobacco, cigarettes and a bottle of beer or two, you know. Well, you couldn't go on leave too often. Uh, so, what was that? We always had a, a lot of money. Actually, you could get, you were issued, say, I think we were issued 50 cigarettes in a tin, caps and tin. Well, if you sold that, was was... Uh, nearly twice as much as you'd get and you pay for a week. So if you weren't a heavy smoker, you, you could sell your cigarettes to the high ties, you know, they, they would buy them no, no sweat at all. And uh, they even had different prices for different brands like senior service. With, you always got more for a packet of 20 senior service than you got for a packet of English woodbines or bloody capstan or something. You know. Um, so that's the way you live. You know, it must have been patently obvious to the authorities when there was a pockets of guys not drawing any pay. <laughs> How guilty could you look? <laughs> yes, I know. Things like that, you know. There used to be a chap in the trucking business after the war, who had a stiff leg. And because we were mixed up in the motor business, we won't mention names, no pectoral. But I said, did a Spandau get you? No, because several of my friends have been got a young cross Chris Cross had got a Spandau and he had a stiff leg and he worked in the bank, you see. He said, if you really want to know, he said, remember when we got to Ancona, 
we came down the main street and he said the bank door was open but the strong room was still locked. So a group of us got together and got a bazooka and he said I'd never used a bazooka before so I didn't get behind something when I fired it, did I? And he said, it hit the door and blew it open, but a piece took my kneecap out. So, at that time we were paid in America, in Allied military currency, right? But the bank was full of lira, so these boys end up with a few sacks full of lira. And they, for a while, started to try and change it to allied military currency, you know, amongst the boys and all that. Anyhow, what happened? He said they got to know a priest very well, and uh, this priest was very good. He went to hospital, and the priest got transferred to another country, we won't say where, and uh, he took the money. And he said, I got my share, and that's my truck out there. How he bought his truck. Probably the most memorable of all the bridges that the engineers erected in Italy was probably that that crossed the very wide Po River, which meant a rather long bridge was needed. It was a bit of a disaster getting across the Po River, which was in the middle of the Po Valley, a very, very flat area, and uh, there were stock banks on either side and it would be about as wide as um, the Waikato. So it meant we had to do a floating bailey trick across the river. So we were putting these pontoons out. We had to, these army uh, pontoons had to go out and be anchored across the lake, uh, the river, um, to, to, to mount the bailey bridge on top of them. Well, we had no way of getting these things against the current. It was a get about three pontoons out and we had very poor, they were called PETA, PETA two-cylinder engines in a frame and they, were, they had a flexible drive coming out of the frame with the motor, coupled to the motor, with a, with a blimmin' propeller on the end of it that you chucked out over the, the end of the pontoons which was highly inefficient. So the, you got about three or four pontoons out on the boat and then th it couldn't cope with the current and our, our pontoons were going down the river. Disaster. So the Yanks were building a bridge up higher and they fortunately well equipped and had two tugboats, two, two with grey marine engines in them open deck, ply, cross ply boats uh, that you stood up in basically and just worked standing up. There was nothing flashy about them, but they were built for tug purposes and the propeller was up a tunnel well out of the way of um, beaching. In other words, you could beach them and the propeller still wouldn't, wouldn't um, you know, get caught up in anything. They came and, and salvaged our situation and, 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 and got all these pontoons anchored in line for the engineers to put this Bailey Bridge across from one pontoon to another. And that's the way we got across the Poe.
and it was very scary because being floating, when you put your truck on that pontoon to cross the river, your back wheels went right down and you were basically looking out of your windscreen at the sky. So you were going along, um, being being careful not to run, go sideways in any way, uh, across the width of the Flick and Bailey Bridge. And, um, and, and finally the unit, you know, the whole division had to go across this river uh, that way on our pontoon, you know. Well, the Americans were building a similar bridge up a bit higher that we borrowed the the um, tugboats from. After that, our army bought two tugboats from the Americans. Whether they were those tugboats or not, I don't know, but they realised that we badly needed those tugboats, so we'd never got across the Po. And, of course, there was no other rivers ever after that to ever need them, but we had them. And when we then went to Japan, we took one with us, just for the sake of going out the beach and the boys putting a, um, a board on it and, and go aquaplaning. <laughs> it, 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 it was just used for pleasure purposes after that, this, 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 this tugboat that we bought. Um, and talking about the Americans building this bridge, uh, it, it 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 was a pleasure to watch them. They they weren't manhandling anything. They had jibs, cranes, and the guys all wore leather gloves. <laughs> it was an education on bridge building their way. Very very nice. You wouldn't even bark your knuckles. Feel me. You know, rivers, Fiume, Fiume Pole. And, uh, well, there were two stories there. One was the bridge, they they managed to get a bridge up, and when they first got it up, the Germans were still upstream, so they floated mines down and were blowing it up. But finally we got it up, and we were getting tanks across it, and trucks and all that. But every soldier's ambition was to pee in the Pope. And they had to put policemen on the bridge because there'd be a truckload of Kiwis stop and all leap off. Okay? And so that was one of the funnier sides of it, to carry out their ambition. And uh, then it was, you know, as fast as you could leapfrog, you know, and then there was one or two German units came down out of the hills and uh, some of our people got a bit lax and didn't have enough guard duty on and one or two units got beaten up. But uh, oh, we had a, a few funny experiences. There was one place where we stopped. The officer said, we're going to cut down here for the night. I forget where it was. And it was a lovely farm and it had a lovely shed, a lovely hay shed. A stupid place to even think about sleeping, but we were looking at it. Hay bales in it there. Oh, it's going to be good this place. And the farm guy came out and he says, "Come over to the farmhouse and have a have a little chum." And I said, oh, okay. Went over there and he had a little glass. God knows what it was. It was so powerful it blew, <laughs> it blew my head off. It was just about raw alcohol. And. Uh, 
So I came back, unloaded the truck, all the batteries out. I was, we'd been driving all night, so I was pretty weary. And uh, and then I just got everything out, and the orders came. Load up, we're moving on. Oh my God! I had to load up, and we went up into the town, whatever town that was. I can't remember. I just have a map now. But um, and we took over, I think, a university building or something that was located. So that was all right. Well, Field Park, who I told you was five miles or something behind the line, decided to get the where we were in the farm in this farm, cut down there for the night, and the the, part, the partisans were coming up to us from over there, and, the, and and they were trying to tell us that Tedesco that you were just up there, we're, we're up there on the coast, and we ah no, the infantry would have gone on, you know, but they had, they'd missed this pocket of Jerry's that were out on the coast. And they tried, of course, to get, at night time, they tried to get through the lines back to their units, or back to the Jerry line. And to do this, they had to go through this farm where the, where the field park had camped down for the night. Well... They bazookaed the trucks. The guys that that had got away, really, were the guys that scarped, went and hid underneath bloody bushes and went over the farm as fast as they could go. And the Germans took the rest of them that they, they captured, you know, for prisoner of war. And I had a couple of mates, you know, in the, uh, that told me later what happened. And uh, they they kept marching them up the roads, uh, and it, what, what for God they know, but they kept on lining them up, as though they are going to line them and shoot them. <laughs> and these guys probably had the tallards, you know, and then they'd have a big powwow, and then they'd decide not to do whatever they were going to do, and form them up again in three ranks and carry on marching up the back road somewhere, I don't know. And, uh, however, the infantry caught up with them in the finish, and, and <laughs> I'll tell you what, they were very nervous boys. <laughs> and we were in that place, we would have got that. You know, that's how much luck you can have. They got it, we shifted on for some reason, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, well, we had a, a pup tent, and two of us would share the pup tent. Um, but, of course, when I had the workshop truck, I got a wire wave from somewhere, I pinched a wire wave out of some house or something, and I rigged that up, up over the lathe in the, at the back of the cab, so to speak, and I, I let it down at night time over the lathe, and I slept in there, and that was my house, yeah, that was good. I was up off the ground and, you know, not the rain much, it was very dry um, at that time. The weather was marvellous. And then all of a sudden they said, right, load every can of diesel. And it was non-stop. Once we got on that motorway from um, Bologna to, um, to Padua, there was only two pieces of autostrata in those days. One went from 
Bologna to Padua. And what really worried me is as we went through the narrow streets of Padua, you know, that, that was a no-no. And I've ever said this ever since, never fight in the city because guys can be up there. Fortunately, there was no bad, bad things happened. However, we get just about up to um, Venice. And then the war just about petered out. The Jerry's were running back as fast as they could go to get up into the hills at the back of Trieste. I think that's what they were trying to do. And, um, but the war had pretty well finished, as I say, when they got to, um, we had a great hero's welcome, of course, in, uh, in, in Venice. Um, because the Germans had been there the day before and we moved in the next day, you know. So and all the people came out and we had a big parade, you know. And all the people lining the roads, we only had enough room for the trucks to go between the people. But however, uh, and then from then on we went up a bit, bit further. There was no activity much from then on. And then when we got to this little town in Ronke, the war finished. The, the um, Allies had landed on, you know, at this before this time, on the you know French coast, and the war was going on there, and uh, it was all over. It was all over, over, except for getting the Germans back out of the hills again, which they voluntarily gave themselves up, um, you know, at that time, and and that was in Melf. Um, Ronke was about 20 or 30 miles out of Trieste. Then we moved from there and went up into the town of Trieste, which was a very nice area in Italy. But we got through Padua and then onto that highway to Trieste, and it was non-stop. And they, the part of some of the um, Tito's boys even blew bridges to try and stop us getting there. But fortunately, we got in got in there one day ahead of him. Once we were through Malfonconi, that's a shipbuilding yard. You go a bit further, and you go through that little bit of a tunnel. Once we got through there, into they they were all locked themselves up in there, and they weren't sure whether they, until they realised we definitely were New Zealanders and we weren't Tito boys. And the north of Italy it was good. And uh, oh, the war had finished, so we started to have a jolly good time then. Out on leave, and we went to dances, and we drank a lot of grog. <laughs> and uh, we had the odd leave session, and we went to Rome, and you know, it was, I don't know, in that last, you know, six months or so, and with summertime, we went out to the beaches at Gradia. And it was just one big holiday. And we went to, oh, up to Trieste and here and there. And one of the boys said to us one night, or one day we were all talking to he said, we're going to have a dance. And I said, what? What the hell are you talking about? He said, we're going to have a dance. We're in this big, it was right on the sea, uh, Udini. I think it was called. Anyhow, there was a sort of an ex-hotel or hotel there and something else. 
and there's a dance floor. So somebody said, where are the girls going to come from? Oh, it's all right. He said, I've been down to Montfalcone and I've gone around telling people. So anyhow, and they said, Tom, he said, will you drive a tractor? And I said, yeah, okay. So we went down and there were about 20 girls there, I suppose, and three or four young fellas. And, uh, oh yeah, the girls were coming and there was one girl, very attractive young lady, and her mother was there and she said, you're not going with them in Italian. And, and I was sitting in the truck sort of listening to them. I knew a little bit of Italian. And uh, I got up and I said, what's the matter? Mama, I said, why? Okay. Oh, she's only 17 or something and she's not going out there and she's a very attractive girl, nicely dressed. I said, well, I'm her brother. And the old girl looked at me, she said, what? I said, that's my sister. Oh, she's right out. Well, I got to know the whole family. <laughs> but we had to take two Italian boys with us. And one of the things I have always regretted, we became very good friends, these Italian boys, and one was a mechanic by trade. And I don't know what, oh, the other was a doctor, or studying to be a doctor. And they used to come to our camp a lot and all the dance, and we used to have a dance every week and they'd turn up there. And I used to go to their places in Montfalcone and this bloke, after I came home from the war, he wrote to me. Could I help him come to New Zealand? And I thought, God, i got no money, I can't help him. I believe he went to Canada. This was a mechanic, I, I don't know. I, then there was another time Hellaray and I made a few bob. We had a we we had a jeep which had inch drive socket sets in the back of it and hoses and all sorts of things for the bulldozer guy that did the you know bulldozer repairs. And uh, we took this and it had a big caterpillar sign on the bonnet, sitting up like this thing. And. Uh, that was good because if we wanted to get past the the guards in Trieste, we only had to say, "Look, we're going up to for the hose on, you know, bulldozer." Because they didn't know where the, where the bulldozer was or anything about, it. and they'd let us through. You see, uh, so that was a good swindle. Well, we went we went <laughs> down down this uh, um, beach. Was sort of a coastal, bit of a coastal beach there, just uh, just before Trieste, uh, and it had a whole heap of midget submarine that the eyes had on trailers. They could just push them in, push them in from the from the beach. And uh, but somebody'd been there before us and pinched all the tires and wheels off the trailers. <laughs> But there was two left. <laughs> they couldn't get the nuts off because they were rusty being in and out of the salt water. But we had inch drive sockets in, didn't we? We could just shear the belief bolts right off. <laughs> and uh, we got these wheels off and we wheeled them up to the jeep that we left parked. And 
about four officers came walking along the road. They, they had digs in, in, in a chalet or something that was on the coast there. And they're walking up smoking their pipes and their cigarettes, talking to one another. And of course, Heather and I were getting the cackers over a bit. And I said, look, don't worry. Just bowl these tyres up as though we were sent here to get them. <laughs> Which we did. They didn't take any notes of They just said, good evening, good evening, sleep, sleep, sleep. <laughs> put, put the tyres on, on the jeep and went into the town. We got 50 bucks for each of those tyres. this episode of Courage and Valour, episode 11, The Engineers, you've heard, in order of appearance, Ted Gatfield, Tom McLennan, Eric Bullen, Ted Lees, Stan Wall, and Pat Green. My grateful thanks to Richard Carstens for providing three of the interviews for this episode. 